0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest, bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld.
1: Welcome everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Peter Grinspoon. He is a primary care doctor and cannabis specialist at Mass General. He's also an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's the recent author of a book called Seeing Through the Smoke, A Cannabis Expert Untangles the Truth About Marijuana. I'm excited for this. Uh, Peter has been on my other podcast, and we've had lots of great conversations around cannabis, about medicine, and really kind of the world that we're in today of psychedelics as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about his history with marijuana and with cannabis or with um, psychedelics rather, and we're going to talk about the work that he's doing today and really his view on how cannabis and marijuana relate to psychedelics and what are some of these other psychedelics do and yeah where 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 we are in terms of understanding them, applying them, what the future may hold, and really the the fascinating space and, and the world that we're in today. So with all that, Peter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bruce. It's a pleasure. So before we get into everything you're doing today and the book and the work that you've been doing with Harvard and Mass General, let's get a little background. You have a particular interesting kind of background with cannabis and with psychedelics. Give us a little bit of the story. Explain to people kind of how this relates to your world and how it relates to kind of who you are today.
2: Well, I've been immersed in the cannabis and the psychedelics worlds sort of my whole life, Yeah. you know, for better or for worse, mostly for better, almost exclusively (laughs) for better. My brother, Danny, when he was fighting a Unsuccessful battle with leukemia. Yeah, when I was just a kid, he, my parents illegally bought him medicinal cannabis, and it made such a incredible difference in his life. You know, he's yeah. getting into chemotherapy, I believe Cisplatinum for his ALL uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and it really, without the cannabis, he was like lying in his bedroom, barfing, and yeah. like with the cannabis, he could come down and play with his little brothers. He could eat. He could maintain his weight. He could interact. And the very few things that are. More impactful than seeing the alleviation of suffering in a family member. So I was really knew that cannabis was a medicine, like through my entire career through medical school. And I feel like I was immune to the lot of the nonsense they teach us Uh, in medical school. We we have a long way to go to improve the curriculum in medical school about about cannabis and about the endocannabinoid system. And then number two, my dad was a very legendary psychiatrist. He was also at Harvard Medical School. He wrote a book, two books actually that are interesting. The first one was called Marijuana Reconsidered in 1971 which you know, concluded that a lot of the harms of cannabis had been blown out of proportion, and it had a really rich and important social history in terms of facilitating the creativity of different uh, artists and writers over the millennia. And he said that it does have harms, but the harms of criminalizing it are much greater than the harms of people using cannabis so yeah. he called for legalization in 1971 which wow. was pretty brave when only 12 yeah. percent of americans supported legalization that number went up about a point for each of the 50 years that my father worked on the issue until he passed away two years ago so now it's about 69 yeah. percent of people support full legalization um the other thing that's interesting is he also took very independent my dad views on other drugs of misuse or potential use and in 1971 he wrote a book called psychedelic drugs reconsidered where he was he completely reevaluated the literature and he was calling from the rooftops for us to investigate and start using cannabis to help people with PTSD treatment resistant depression addiction with psychedelic therapy this was 43 years ago and he was so shot down at Harvard Medical School they basically denied really? him promotion because of his views on cannabis and psychedelic he never became full professor i mean most people that write 11 books and 180 <laughs> scientific papers get full professor at harvard it takes about a tenth that much to get full professor wow. at harvard but you know when he went to a, a big combined staff meeting with the new director of psychiatry the guy in front of everybody upon meeting my dad announced to the huge room the huge audience I've read your book on psychedelics and I don't like it one bit and then walked away. And wow. my dad was, this is the Dr. Joseph Coyle, the consolidated director of psychiatry at Harvard. And my dad was like, you know, nice, Nice to meet you too, but they gave him so much crap about his advocacy for psychedelics. He also wrote another great book called Psychedelic Reflections. And I believe in like the 1980s, he was like suing with like Rick Doblin and Andy Weil to get yeah. the government to allow people, like in the 1980s, 40 years ago, to get yeah. people allowed to use MDMA um, for, for treating, for example, PTSD or helping couples who are having difficulty. So, you know, I was like in my teens when I read this book and I was an advocate for my entire life, well, starting at that point, I could say for the last 40 years, I've been an advocate of of research and actual utilization of psychedelic therapy. And and growing up was really fun. We had these really, these luminaries, these brilliant advocates uh, for psychedelic therapy and for obviously cannabis legalization in my living room. You know, the peace pipe would always be burning. They'd be having the Mm -hmm. most interesting conversations. There'd always be a lot of laughter and a lot of like good humor. So I just had a very different, upbringing in terms of, like, what are the relative benefits versus harms of psychedelics and cannabis?
1: Yeah. And I'm curious, like, did that just give you kind of a a new awareness? Was that complicated because you were now kind of navigating a world that was not that way and you had this kind of conflicting kind of understanding or view on things? I mean, how do you think that shaped you or where was the opportunity and where was the burden in having that experience growing up?
2: Well, there was definitely a burden. There's no question because, like, at my home, we had these really motivational people who were literally professors, doctors, lawyers. Yeah. Uh, they were actually changing the world. These are the most motivational people you've ever met. And then you go to junior high school, or even high school, <laughs> and you come in to the D.A.R.E. program and the same, policemen year yeah. after year would like waddle in and they barely have the gumption to give you the same tired speech about how cannabis causes this, that, you know, whatever. Back then it damaged DNA and you grew breasts yeah. and your testicles fell off. And But they made a big deal about how like, amotivational syndrome was a really drastic and ominous consequence of cannabis use. And at home I'd have like, these people like Carl Sagan, you know, a best friend of my dad's oh, talking damn. about like, is there life on other planets, and, or do we destroy ourselves when we develop technology? Like these really, really uh, deep thoughts. And then at school, I'd have these really amotivated people telling me the cannabis causes motivational syndrome. And I knew yeah. that they were all lying. So it was very yeah. confusing. It also, it taught me to think for myself about the stuff, but it also yeah. didn't do wonders for my respect to authority. And I think we risk mm-hmm. doing that to, millions of teens if we lie to them about drugs we've really got to tell them the truth that's slightly a different topic but the dare program just caused so much more harm than good
1: yeah yeah no i agree and so tell us about the work that you're doing today and or i guess how, how has that led to the work that you're doing today and how you know in this kind of world of cannabis and psychedelics there are things that combine them there are things that separate them i'm curious on your sort of view of kind of the constellation of things that we really need to be considering in terms of, you know, sort of new medicines, whether it's plant-based or lab-based, you know opportunities we have to really expand our tool set to help both help people with issues as well as help people really just self-actuate and, and live the life they want to live.
2: Absolutely. First of all, I do, I do want to note that was about six questions. That was not one question. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <But> No problem. <laughs> if I miss anything, let me know. But you know, I am a primary care doctor, I've been a primary care doctor for a quarter of a century, um, mm-hmm. you know, but my heart lies with the cannabis and with the psychedelics. I mean, my heart truly lies yeah. in writing. I feel like I'm sort of a writer trapped in a in doctor's yeah. body. I just came out with my second book, which is about cannabis, called Seeing Through the Smoke, which you mentioned at the very beginning. Yeah. But I'm a clinician educator. You know, different people have different talents. And I, mm-hmm. I have, like, the deepest respect for the researchers. They're the, really the ones pushing the envelope and all this. But I, I find myself, and this is part of how I grew up, with these great role models, with, like Carl Sagan as a science communicator. My dad was a brilliant brilliant science communicator and about drug policy. And my brother David actually is an astrobiologist and he's he's a writer and he's a spectacular science communicator. So I find myself like a communicator is the thing that I do most importantly. I love teaching, I love teaching about cannabis, about psychedelics, about medicine. I love speaking, uh, but really I love writing. and. Um, I just think there's a lot of work to be done because a lot of there's so much education that needs to be done within the cannabis and within the psychedelic spaces. Um, And a lot of it honestly involves unlearning a lot of the nonsense that we've learned in the past from the war on drugs. I mean, I honestly feel, I'm not trying to criticize or cut anybody down, but, you know, for the last 50 years, there hasn't been much difference between, like, what the US government was saying about cannabis and they needed to taint it because they couldn't really run a war on drugs with just like opiates and cocaine, yeah. there weren't enough people, they needed cannabis. And so the US mm-hmm. government's position and the position of the psychiatric community, they've been so wrong, so off about cannabis for the last half century. And the medical community too, I have a whole chapter on this in my book. You know, doctors the one thing doctors are supposed to do is do no harm. My chapter is called Do Do mm-hmm. No Harm, about how doctors were on the wrong side the war on drugs. Uh, You know, in my dad's book, Marijuana Reconsidered, he demonstrated that in 1968, the writing about cannabis in Playboy, which used to have like great journalism, was like far, far more accurate than the Journal of the American Medical Association. So what's been really interesting to me, doctors are slowly but surely coming along on cannabis. It depends a little bit on your vantage point. You know, the oncologists are mostly in favor of it because they see it helping their patients, whereas uh, the psychiatrists see the rare but very tragic train wrecks of like the pediatric or teens that get derailed by cannabis and and have like worsening psychosis. So, but doctors are coming along, but it's been very interesting to me how, and I write a lot about this in my book, how, and there are a lot of different theories about how right now 70% of psychiatrists are in favor of psychedelic therapy, but they've been so completely against cannabis. A little bit less recently, but with cannabis, the psychiatrists have been like, oh, golly gee, that's illegal, we can't use that. And with psychedelics, it's like, hey, let's do some acid, let's do some therapy. We could really make some progress. Who cares about the man? Who cares if it's illegal? It's really just been this incredible manifestation of sort of psychedelic exceptionalism. So uh, it just fascinates me to no end how people can have these positions on one thing and these like contradictory positions on another. And cannabis is a psychedelic. So, anyways, I, I, I won't. Yeah, well, I won't go into yeah. the whole TED talk.
1: So, so good job. I think you covered all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's let's talk about that last point because I think that's I always kind of you know think about this or, or realize that the, one of the big differences between between the discussion on cannabis and psychedelics is why do we have this distinction? You know, is there a distinction? And then even in the psychedelic space, we're, we're really dealing with a, a whole category that may or may not include a bunch of things. H- how do you kind of organize this in terms of, you know, you have got cannabis and, you know, sort of plant medicine. You've got some of these things that come out of animals. Uh, you've got things that are developed in the lab. You've got these kind of traditional ones. You've got new ones. You people coming up with, you know, new compounds and molecules and stuff. Like, w- what's your kind of organizational structure when we're talking about this world of stuff?
2: well that's a great question my organizational structure is first of all in the context of the notion that people have the right to change their consciousness as long as they're not harming other people every single society has changed their consciousness in one way or another and it just fascinates me to no end that like there are quote good drugs and bad drugs like the same psychiatrists who rail against cannabis all use caffeine and many use alcohol and tobacco and you know for heroin you can get arrested and put in prison for oxycodone which we prescribe very easily you have a legitimate prescription and 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 the chemical difference between oxycodone and heroin is like it's a couple molecules like it's so arbitrary which are the good drugs and which are the bad drugs and i think a lot of our thinking on this unfortunately has just been so distorted by the war on drugs that's why we have to unlearn as much as we have to learn And, you know, I'm someone who is in recovery 15 years, very solid recovery from a vicious prescription opiate addiction. So Mm -hmm. I understand addiction as well as anybody. I wouldn't put Get addicted and recover on the medical school curriculum because you know a third of the people would die. It's, it's not a fun process. Yeah, but yeah, if you've exactly. been through an addiction, yeah. you truly understand it. And so I tend to. And, and my definition of addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. Like a very simple. Mm-hmm. So you know the way I classify drugs is: are they helpful? or are they not helpful? And uh, cannabis is very helpful to many, many people. It it certainly has its harms. Some people get addicted to it, Mm -hmm. teens shouldn't use it. Pregnant women, we we don't know the safety, but generally speaking, it helps millions of people with these conditions and symptoms that other medications don't address as effectively. And it's just crazy that we've tainted that as a medication and in the same right. it's astounding the evidence that we have on psychedelics. Unfortunately, there was a 50 year gap. We were doing great research and then they criminalized it for the war on drugs. And now it's just coming out of the closet again. So a lot of the research is like preliminary and growing, but it's absolutely astounding the potential that we have for psychedelics. I mean, we're not talking just about treating depression. You know, uh, primary care doctors actually treat more depression than psychiatrists because we just see so many patients. And SSRIs work maybe in a third of people. And then do you want to be on them for life? Like taking this pharmaceutical for life that can dull you sexually, dull you emotionally. And then we're not talking just about treating depression. We're talking about treating treatment-resistant depression. People who have been have ineffective treatment with three different conventional Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical antidepressants. And these are the people that are responding to Mm -hmm. psychedelic therapy. It's mind-blowing the potential and i think we need to address some issues which i'm sure we'll discuss very very quickly like how to get these legalized how to get them safely in the hands of people how to get them paid for because the last thing we need is another treatment for the wealthy white and well to do so it it brings up as many issues as it Answers, but it, we're just in such an exciting time right now with these emerging therapies with psychedelics. I couldn't, you know, I, I watch the newspaper or I watch the scientific journals about this stuff like watching a, you know, a horror movie or but like a, like an action movie. I'm so excited to see what's going to happen next. It's a great time yeah. to be involved in this stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, so let's uh let's talk a little bit about what we know from a kind of a medical treatment point of view. You know, what do we know about how the psychedelics work or kind of how the different psychedelics work? You know, what what is really happening and what is interesting and new about this and what do we not know? What do we kind of are looking for in the research and the trials that are that are either in place or that are projected? Like what what is the what is our knowledge base and, well, and where do we go from what here? What we
2: don't know is more than what we know at this point, but that's true for like a ton of things in medicine, actually doctors pretend yeah. that we know everything. Like we know such a small fraction of what we should know, but you know, we we don't know 100% who can benefit from psychedelics. Can people with mental illness, psychosis, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, much older people, teenagers, we just don't know the safety and the benefits in these huge groups of populations that really, really need help. We don't know, as I said before, how we're going to pay for it. And I think we don't know how long the treatment effect lasts. You know, ketamine, people do really well on ketamine, you know, instead of waiting for two weeks for to see whether an SSRI may or may not work, people feel suicidal people with treatment resistant depression can feel better in like 40 minutes. I mean, that's like life altering, but we don't really know if like, are you still going to have to get a ketamine infusion like every two weeks, every month, every two months for life? Uh, What are the consequences of all that ketamine and and who's going to pay for it? It's extraordinarily expensive. So we we don't know that. We also don't know, though many people, everybody has a very strong opinion on this, whether the trip or the mystical experience is an integral part of the Mm -hmm. growth that that comes along with psychedelics or whether that's just sort of an ancillary thing. I I personally think the mystical experience is critical because it involves growth and change in a completely different way of understanding yourself and your relationship to other people and to nature. But you know, other people make a strong case that it's just a question of tickling the right receptors, which psychedelics happen to do. So there's a ton that we don't know. Uh, We we know how psychedelic Mm -hmm. works in a very sort of general schematic way that they lower blood flow to our default mode network, which is sort of our sort of baseline operating system in our brains, and that they therefore allow other parts of the brain Mm -hmm. that don't ordinarily connect that well with each other to communicate with each other, which helps us break out of this, this rumination, this negative intrusive thinking that really characterizes most, if not all mental illnesses. Psychedelics also promote neuroplasticity and help, again, the formation of new, healthier, pathways in our brains. And then for the first couple of weeks, right after a psychedelic experience, people are particularly amenable to making progress with therapy. That's why it's called psychedelic therapy. It's not just about taking the drug. It's about integrating your process and working through your traumas and your issues. And for whatever reason, I think they're still understanding uh, related to the first two things that I mentioned, the different parts of the brain communicating with each other, they don't ordinarily get to communicate the neurogenesis and the the, the lack of ruminations, you're not like obsessing over the same things over and over again, people make a lot of progress. And, you know, we're learning how to maximize the progress, how often they need to do this, how long we need to uh, continue the treatment, what the different drugs do if different, you know, analogs of the different drugs, you know, is DMT a useful drug? It only lasts about 15 minutes. They're trying to develop longer versions of DMT because there's been anecdotal reports of people doing really, really well. I mean, the final thing I'll say is that I have a a very close friend. Uh, She's a very brilliant and accomplished person. She, Mm -hmm. like many of us, was having trouble drinking too much wine, first a a bottle of wine a night, then two bottles of wine a night. And she did an ayahuasca um, ceremony in Costa Rica, and she was able to stop drinking, but it wasn't like she had a white it. like have cravings, yeah. you force yourself not to drink, I'm not going to drink for... <laughs> she lost her appetite for alcohol yeah. for six months. It was unbelievable. And not only that, she stopped smoking for six months, yeah. cigarettes, which was not even on her list of things to do when she went to do the ayahuasca yeah. experience. And it was just absolutely spectacular. No other addiction treatments are nearly that effective. However, interestingly, after about six months a glass of wine here a glass of wine there and then in a couple weeks she was smoking and drinking again so it worked better than any other addiction treatment i've seen hands down in Mm. 25 years of doing this stuff yet it didn't last forever
1: yeah interesting well so let's talk about that i mean what is the kind of clinical therapeutic model that we seem to be I, i guess driving towards or that we seem to be effective and how i guess what is it about the therapy process that helps augment that helps kind of process the psychedelic experience and and what are i guess what do we know about that and what do we no, not know about that and like where do we see that going
2: okay well that was only about four questions <laughs> wait what was the first part of the question the second was about therapy
1: well so th- yeah so th- i'm i'm just kind of curious in terms of what in terms of the the therapy component of psychedelic assisted therapy like why is that important what happens in that therapy process
2: Oh, yeah, got it. Well, first of all, it's hotly debated what the rubric should be, what the model should be of treatment. What's happening is because of the incredible work of MAPS and other groups, we're getting enough clinical data that for certain under certain controlled circumstances, like in a doctor's office with a psychiatrist and therapist, uh, likely MDMA and psilocybin are going to be legalized. In the next couple years Uh, we have a huge shortage of therapists uh, that are trained in this and we don't know who's going to pay for it but it's really really exciting so you're going to be able to assuming your hospital has it and they have enough therapists and you can afford it you're going to be able to get psychedelic therapy like in the hospital with like certified psychedelic therapists and a doctor which is really really exciting however should that be the only model the only way to do it Uh, A lot of people don't want to do it at Mass General Hospital, my home institution. They want to do it in the woods with their friends, or they want to do it in Costa Rica. You know, and one argument is, you know, you should do it in the context of your busy, stressful life. So you learn how to cope with these stresses and these triggers, sort of like, you know, I'm not a big fan of rehab for alcohol or drugs because... It's easy not to drink or use drugs in rehab because there aren't alcohol or drugs in rehab. The minute you go back to your home environment, that you get exposed to them and you could use again. You could even overdose because you've lost your tolerance. So uh, some people argue that it should be in the context of your life. Other people argue that the psychedelic yeah. experience is so unique and so spiritual and so mystical, why would you do it, you know, drive in traffic, park, do it in a concrete building when you could be doing it in the woods or on the beach or at a retreat? So I think people should have the right to choose these things. Of course, you could have doctors on the beach giving psychedelic therapy, but again, that's going to be really, really unaffordable. And then the question is, should or shouldn't people... Regular people, not doctors, not in clinical yeah. therapeutic setting, have legal access to these medications. Now, you could debate whether this is psychedelic therapy. I, I personally think that when I was in college and I did mushrooms with my friends and we talked about things, well, I did 2CB with my brothers. I don't want to get them in trouble. And, you know, we actually got it straight from Sasha Shulgin. So I feel very fortunate. <laughs> they, these were very deep profound therapeutic experiences that improved <laughs> my sense of self, Village, my yeah. connection with others and my quality of life. This is therapy and it shouldn't be limited to the hospitals. It shouldn't be limited to the psychiatrist. It needs to be at very yeah. minimum decriminalized. I don't think we should have psychedelics like we do cannabis in stores the people selling them and you don't want someone up selling, you know, acid and then having people freak out. There needs to be a lot of education and it needs to be done with careful reverence for how strong these medications are. But it shouldn't just be for wealthy people in a hospital setting. And furthermore, people shouldn't be getting in criminal trouble for using these things. So I happen to be a proponent of a much broader access model for psychedelics, as long as there's regulation and education so it's not a free for all.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about about marijuana versus psychedelics and and where we are in terms of understanding kind of their therapeutic use. And then we can talk a little bit about where we are from a kind of political and, and legal status. But um, what, what's your view or how do you kind of relate marijuana and psychedelics? Are they Is this really part of a continuum? Is this part of a bigger set? Are, do you see differences between these? What's your set of sense from a, a medical therapeutic view?
2: Well, in several senses, cannabis absolutely is a psychedelic. First of all, if you've ever taken a high dose of cannabis for, you know, on purpose or accidentally, it's definitely a psychedelic experience. I mean, you can like, have all kinds of like mm-hmm. visual phenomenon and and it is just there's no question that it's a psychedelic at lower doses cannabis is more like a yep. garden variety treatment for anxiety and pain you know and we're still learning what microdosing of psychedelics uh, can do uh, for cluster headaches psychedelics are thought to be very helpful for as an anti-inflammatory. So there's a lot of overlap in the ways in which they help people. But the real ways I think cannabis is absolutely a psychedelic and that I'm just, as we talked about a little earlier, I'm Mm -hmm. astounded that the psychiatrists haven't picked up on this and they've been against cannabis, but pro-psychedelic. When cannabis is a psychedelic, it makes no sense whatsoever, is that cannabis helps people with insight. It helps them with mindfulness and becoming mindfully connected to the present moment to nature and to other people. And I truly think this insight generating component of cannabis, which my father actually wrote about quite a bit, could be so helpful to people in therapy. It might have a different mechanism. I don't think we quite understand if it's the exact same mechanism as with psychedelics, but I think it truly can help people in therapy. And if the psychiatrists had been embracing cannabis and incorporating Mm -hmm. it into therapy, as they are incorporating psychedelics very recently, all along instead of being on the the other side of the war on drugs and stigmatizing and helping criminalize people who use cannabis. We've had 20 million arrests for nonviolent cannabis possession over the last 50 years. These are people whose education has been crippled, their student loans have been denied, their housing has been denied, their their employment opportunities have been curtailed. All for no reason. Cannabis is a psychedelic. It has tremendous benefit to help people. Some people can get addicted. Yeah. Again, you shouldn't take it if you're a teen or if you have a history of psychosis, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, but it's really, really helpful medication for many people. And I think it's helpful in many of the same ways the psychedelics are proving to be helpful.
1: Yeah. And where are we from a sort of industry, legal, regulatory point of view? I mean, we've had this cannabis world for you know, 10 plus years now. And if we've seen, you know, kind of this medical programs and then these adult use recreational programs, you know, the industry has evolved in, you know, sort of specific ways based on all that. I guess, what's your assessment of that? And what have we learned from that, that we could apply to psychedelics or how are some of these other compounds going to be, what would you suggest in terms of how these compounds are regulated and, and kind of administered and kind of managed? from a social point of view.
2: Well, it's starting to get a little absurd frankly because now we have about 40 states that have medical marijuana this legal. Yeah. That's like 80%. And we have 23% uh, 23 states that have recreational cannabis legal, that's a half. Like, is it going to get to the point where cannabis is legal in every state and it's still illegal (laughs) in the federal government? I mean, there's so much harm reduction you could do if there's like interstate commerce and consistent labeling and getting things out of the shadows so that doctors and patients can talk comfortably about this stuff and doctors can talk about side effects and warning and dosage. And I think the same is true with psychedelics. I think cannabis is just happening because 94% of Americans currently support legal access to medical cannabis. They've realized that we've been sold a complete bill of goods about cannabis and the patients are really waking up before the doctors are and before the government is. But the doctors and the government are following close behind and we're going to have cannabis legalization soon. Now, with psychedelics, it is being legalized much more quickly and directly than cannabis. But as I mentioned before, in a totally different model, it's being legal, legal, legalized for people who could pay for it in the psychiatrist's office For people that have a doctor, a psychiatrist, or near a hospital and can get access. It's not being legalized for the average person who wants to try it, use it, and benefit from it. So um, it's just going to be really interesting. I think that there's a huge gap. You can't just legalize it for for like 1% of people that can afford it and that have a doctor and a primary care doctor and have access to it. You just can't do that. So I think they're going to have to come up with a model. As I mentioned before, I I think the dispensary model works really well for cannabis because it gives people access and it regulates it. But I don't think it's going to work that well for psychedelics unless you have some kind of restrictions or like very, very heavy education because, you know, the psychedelics can cause harm. They can, you can have a really scary terrible experience. And just like cannabis, a lot of this harm is avoidable if you use a reasonable dose and you take it in a gentle and relaxing set and setting. Again, that could be in the woods with your friends. That could be in the beach in Costa Rica with a clinician, it doesn't have to be at MGH in a center. Nothing gets MGH, they do a spectacular job with their psychedelic center, but people need options. So I think you're gonna with psychedelics have to come up with some kind of rubric that incorporates these very diverse stakeholders that all want safe access to psychedelics
1: yeah peter this has been a pleasure if people want to find out more about you the work that you do the new book what's the best way to get that information
2: well the book they can find at amazon or in most bookstores again it's called seeing through the smoke a cannabis specialist untangles the truth about marijuana to get in contact with me and i have a very easy to reach me to send me emails just go to my website petergrinspoon.com and grinspoon is spelled grin like smile spoon like fork and if people just go to petergrinspan.com there's a contact me button and they could, um, they could find out all about me or they can uh, send me a message and I'm happy to, to email them back and further the discussion.
1: I will make sure that all the information there is in the show notes, people can get that. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation and I look forward to our next one.
0: Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast.